Hello and welcome to The Spectator Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. And this week, we're going to be talking in the 20th year anniversary about Harry Potter, the first book having been published just this summer in 1997. Things seem very distant now. Now, we've already talked a little on The Spectator's main podcast about the effects of the Harry Potter generation and the way, the way it's affected wider society. We want to talk here a little bit more about the books as literary artefacts. And I'm joined for that by my colleague Nick Hilton, who organised just this weekend a Harry Potter conference, and Melanie McDonough, the comment editor of the Evening Standard and a regular writer and reviewer on children's books. Nick, Melanie, welcome. Nick, can I ask you to start with, because I think a lot of people will probably think, a conference on Harry Potter. What on earth were you thinking of? Why? Well, what on earth were they thinking of is a good question. Certainly in the days running up to it, I was thinking that myself. But it was something that just came to me because it was the anniversary year and because actually so little consideration has been given to the sort of legacy, like 20 years on, of the book's And it's less a kind of literary conference in the traditional sense of analysing it as a literary text, because there is only so far you can get with it. But it's hugely important as a cultural artefact of our times, of my generation, of older generations. And the appetite that people had for the conference, I think, was probably testament to the fact that people do want it to be taken seriously, if not as a text, uh, as a phenomenon. Well, a lot of people do take it very seriously as a text. You know, there are academic conferences thrown about it in the States, aren't Mm. there, where they... I think this is a bit of an over-exaggerated story. It's the sort of thing that comes up on, like, the BBC. If, you know, if any university offers a Harry Potter module, suddenly it's a great thing. It's like Harry Potter is being taken seriously. But really amongst academia, amongst scholarship, there hasn't been very much written. There hasn't been very much written at a serious level. I mean, the undergraduate courses, undergraduate modules are one thing, but, you know, serious consideration is, is another thing. Cult studies kind of. Exactly. Thing. And so what sort of things were discussed at your conference? Lots of things, because we had papers submitted from such a wide range of universities, such a wide range of speakers, not all actually affiliated with anyone. So we had things on, on race, on religion, on things that were, which were very niche within the text, things that people really like drew out as fans. We ran panels on fan fiction, you know, because that's obviously a big part of... Which she encourages, doesn't she? I mean, She encourages really. it, and, I, and Harry Potter as a phenomenon has encouraged it on a scale which is unprecedented. We did panels on politics, we did panels on individual characters, just looking at them as characters. It was, you know, some of it was much more fan-based than you would find at any other literary conference, and, you know, 150 people wouldn't have paid to turn up to very many literary conferences. No, alas not. Melanie, what does this sound like madness to you, or do you think it is a, it is a phenomenon that there's that sort of well, analysis? It's unquestionably a phenomenon, but it does rather remind me unsettlingly of the Lord of the Rings syndrome, whereby... You do get a virtual cult generated by what's actually a very good work of fiction. And what the kind of subsidiary industry around Harry Potter does is, of course, take one away from the books themselves. And the thing about Harry Potter is purely and simply the books, I think, in that they are cracking reads. They're very good storytelling. I mean, atrociously written, but um, terrific stories. Atrociously written? um, I think that um, at the beginning and end of the appeal... And the um, sort of industry surrounding the um, politics, religion, and subgenres of the um, of the books, while very interesting in themselves, really don't get us very far. In that the appeal of Harry Potter is down to the essence of the thing, which is is that it's a boarding school story, which then takes on a rather larger dimension in a kind of cosmic battle of um, good and evil, um, which I have to say hasn't had very happy effects in terms of its uh, followers, imitators and admirers. So uh, I do uh, entirely concur with um, wanting to 
a blow J.K. Rowling for the books. But I have to say that I've got reservations both about the spin-offs and about the fiction that it's generated by way of um, imitation. Yeah, when you say it's atrociously written, I mean, I often feel like whenever anything's a huge kind of success, the sort of Dan Brown's or, you know, a book becomes that sort of stellar, very often people go, well, the thing about it is it's terribly written. And it strikes me it's always kind of interesting to try and ask instead, you know, there are lots and lots of maybe less well-written books around. I mean, I think J.K. Rowling, you could defend her writing, actually, but, you know, we might differ on that. But the, the question we ask is why, of all the many terrible books, are these ones the ones that are so successful? And is it to you the boarding school theme that does it? I mean, what do you think the virtues of the book are? What's special about J.K. Rowling that she's got that well, I understand um, in a way, you've made the point very effectively, which is that uh, it, it works really well as a story. And so the fact is that it can't be that badly written because it tells a really cracking story. So it does its job very effectively, um, Quay Prose, which is convey the story. And um, the story has an enormous um, imaginative drive. So um, although it's kind of got uh, cliches and overwritten and uh, perhaps crudely written, like a very great deal of uh, good fiction, especially children's fiction, it does the job. It gets the reader sort of in on the um, on the narrative and can, can't stop. So um, I was perhaps, as you say, being a bit snobbish in suggesting that it was badly written, though in terms of style, I don't know whether it would pass muster with Tolkien or Lewis or anybody like that. But as effective storytelling goes, it's as good as you can get. What do, what, what do you think, Nick? You've got a literary background as well. Do yeah. you rate them as, as writing? I rate them as writing because I think that writing something which is so plot-driven, so readable, so compulsive is a huge skill, and I think that's a huge talent, and I don't think you know, flair and innovation are necessarily the be-all end-all of literature. You know, one of the panels we ran at the conference was actually on whether it is literature, whether we can actually see these books as literature, whether they're doing anything particularly radical. And I think the answer is that they aren't doing anything particularly radical, anything particularly innovative, but they're still they're still the bedrock of such a important kind of cultural movement. They're still kind of an artifact that really... She's a bit of a collage on. artist as well, isn't she, in some ways? I mean, you can see where the motifs have been, you know, the sort of T.H. White stuff. There's a lot of stuff has been pulled in from other places you know there's bed knobs and broomsticks yeah but no one was you know no one complains about that in Milton you know no one complains about that in Joyce I mean she pulls together lots of different influences she comes from a did a classics degree at university and you can see the classical influences so again yeah I mean I don't think she's the most original writer but I think there is something original in the way that the series has has gone on and where it continued and the way it built momentum in a very much in a state where you know they were being published as a phenomenon after the third book had come out from the fourth fifth sixth seventh books each book was being greeted by millions of people reading them, which is... You and know, midnight so, launches, I remember I had to review them all, and they, you know, a bike would appear solemnly at your house at quarter past midnight, and you then have to read through the night and try to review. I mean, yeah, exactly. Well, I'm generally lucky to have got the bikes. Um, I had a queue at midnight to have every bookshop past <laughs> my hometown. So um, I was just confounded by the spectacle. Uh, this was in Ireland, of um, a mile and a half queue of children and their parents, and I don't know which of the two was um, more anxious to get the mitt on the actual copy, and you'd have fights breaking about over who'd be first to get hold of it. So uh, as effective fiction, it doesn't get more effective than this. Yeah. And as I say, I think um, the charm of the thing was initially in the boarding school story. It happens to be a classless boarding school. You don't have to pay for it or anything like that. So it's not snobbish in any uh, private school sense. But it does have that extraordinary sort of charm of a contained world, and a contained world with a very exact and um, strict pattern of life. That is to say, you've got um, the school year as the framing narrative, of the, of the frame for the narrative and the story, and then everything happens within that. 
And that um, sort of Eton Blyton sort of trick of getting you away from your parents, getting children away from their parents, in this case, in the boarding schools set up, and then giving them a very clear sort of arc uh, within which the story can happen, that is to say, the, the terms of the year and then sort of exams at the close, does give you enormous amount of scope to create that um, repetition. And so the the sequence of years um, in Harry Potter's time at school is precisely what brings the, the narrative to its conclusion, even though during the course of, of the series, the thing takes off in an altogether different direction, that is to say, in this sort of cosmic struggle against evil incarnate, or rather evil resurrected, which um, gives an entirely different sort of aspect, but like the Lord of the Rings um, took off in a different direction yes. from the Hobbit. So um, it is precisely that that charm of the original setting, I think, that enabled it to um, captivate readers at the outset. Is she also the first writer? I can't think of another off the top of my head, though, that there might be one, who had that brilliant idea of writing a series which is going to grow up with its readers. I mean, whereby the first book is very obviously aimed at children who are younger than the last book. I mean, that it kind of puts on a year of reading age every year it goes through, mm. I think. Yes, you've got um, the problem with a lot of school stories, which is that the characters are forever sort of fixed in the remove or at the age of 14 or whatever. So um, all the Billy Bonter stories, for instance, and they're all the Ina Blyton stories, seem to be perpetually set in around the fourth form. So um, th- there isn't really the growing up and the progression, which is fine because if you want to go on for the next 100 books, then um, you don't really want them to grow up and um, leave school because that rather undermines the entire exercise. <laughs> but um, it, it does happen with Harry Potter and you're right. The children will grow up with the character and this came out um, at a colossal rate, I mean, probably about one a year. So in a sense, Harry Potter did keep pace with his readers. And has there been anyone else who's done that? I mean, is that original to her? I can't think of anyone. I mean, you could say maybe mm. Tolkien. Uh, I'm trying to think. Certainly not classic boarding school stories. They were kind of uh, set in there at one age, and um, and that was it. Maybe that some contemporary ones are done. Also, I mean, you know, we we've, we've talked about its influence, kind of culturally. What about this sort of narrow, narrow question of what's its effect on the way children's books are written and published been, and is that generally for the best? Do you think? I think it's been disastrous because the first thing it's done is um, set pound signs dancing before the eyes of would-be authors. So you have got um, this um, fairy tale in itself of a struggling single mother who um, makes a fortune and becomes the richest woman in England by virtue of, I mean, apart from sort of four other people, by virtue of uh, having this brilliant idea about um, a boy who goes off to a school for magicians, which she herself derived from a little boy standing on a station platform when she was letting her mind wander on a train, which is a lesson to us all, just to let her mind wander sometime. But um, the, the whole notion that you can sort of get the jackpot with a brilliant idea for a children's book has had, I think, a calamitous effect on children's fiction generally in that um, um, you've had an awful lot of imitative stuff. And um, this has been an awful lot of stuff about magicians, about magic, about schools of magic. I mean, the, the idea isn't obviously new. Nothing, no idea is. For instance, Diana Wynne-Jones did something about a book for a, a school for magicians. But um, the, the, some of the stuff that we've had since then about magic libraries and magic books and magic libraries, I mean, a number of the themes from the Harry Potter books have um, taken off and have a life of their own in other less skilled hands. And I think we're in, in the syndrome, um, kind of the Amazon syndrome. If you like that, you're bound to like this. Customers have bought that, also bought this, this and this. And so um, kind of publishers and uh, authors together have um, sort of run with the notion that if it worked um, for J.K. Rowling, why it could work for them. And I have to say that some of the stuff that's come out since, you can practically smell sort of um, would-be Harry Potter off it. And it's normally tripe. Nick, you, you're more 
more nearly of the generation that kind of grew up with Harry Potter. Did you sort of see a marked decline as you saw it in the in the quality of the books that were suddenly on offer to you? Well, I think I was particularly lucky as a person of the Harry Potter generation to have sort of, I think it was probably a golden age of children's books in that we had two kind of tones of books. On one hand, you had things like Harry Potter and Artemis Fowl, things that were very richly inventive, basically comic books that had also had a, you know, a darkness to them, which previously I think comic books wouldn't have had that or wouldn't have evolved into that into that darkness. And then on the other hand, you had His Dark Materials, Sabriel, Windsinger, you know, again, things that were kind of morally complex, quite serious, but were available for children. So I think we were coming from a particularly high mark in children's fiction, and I think there has been a decline. I don't quite agree in the sense that I don't think everything has just been a pale Harry Potter imitation. There are some very obvious examples of things that were pale Harry Potter imitations, but I think they've kind of been phased out and the trouble is Harry Potter keeps selling I mean I was a bookseller a couple of years ago and I was selling copies of Harry Potter every day I mean it still sells With them, my, my, my eight-year-old daughter has just read her way through the whole lot I bet you do you, you have know. to rebuy new copies of them because you know they're constantly I, re-releasing yes. new editions and stuff but we're now cycling back to this quite actually an age of slapstick humour and I think that the David Williams books the much closer analogue for the David Williams books is Roald Dahl I mean Roald Dahl is still one of the biggest sellers in children's literature but you know, David Walliams, the Diary of a Wimpy Kid books, the, oh my gosh, I can't even remember what it's called, Tom something, maybe you... Sorry, David, uh, Tom Gates. Uh, Mr. Gum. Yeah, there are various kind of new series that are are basically like a lot of toilet humour, a lot of kind of physical comedy, a lot of very large characters. And actually, I think some of the kind of social, not social realism, but sort of the sort of realism of his dark materials and Harry Potter in their sense of no, character. Realism up to a point. Oh, in, in terms of the character development, not you know, these bears, aren't archetypes in the same sense that, you know, the twits or the BFG are archetype characters. And, you know, gangster granny is an archetype character. And I think that's what I think is a shame, is that imaginative worlds with very real, very developed characters are actually not really in vogue at the moment. And just as before we end, I'd like to ask you, but do either of you have a sense of what you think the next thing that's going to change the change the game in children's literature might be? You never know what direction it's going to go in. I mean, um, we've pretty well exhausted all the resources of Greek, Roman and Norse mythology, I think. Rick Reardon has done a sort of um, a junk shop job on um, the, the, the entirety of kind of world mythology, having worked his way systematically through uh, Greeks, Greece, Rome, Egypt and now Scandinavia. So uh, it may be that we've had peak myths. Really, there's no knowing where imagination will take um, a writer, thank God. I mean, we go through fashions. I've just come back from the London Library, and in the children's section there, you could you could quite see clearly that the Victorians, it was fairies. Late Victorians, early Edwardians, it was adventure stories, the emperor. And um, then later on, it's school stories. So uh, one does have fashions, but there's no telling what the next one's going to be. Oh, well, maybe we should write it. Thank you very much, Melanie McDonough and Nick Hilton. And in this week's book section... Michael Tanner looks at a monumental and gripping new biography of Toscanini, while Clinton Halen is unfortunately underimpressed by a new history of prog rock. We also have a wonderful piece on the new nature writing, a story of an English hen harrier reviewed by Horatio Clare, and from, as our headlines have it, formidable black talons to an awesome beak, Kerry Schofield reviews a new biography of a peculiar and eccentric man who taught David Cameron and the Archbishop of Canterbury at Eton. In fiction, Kate Womersley admires Nicola Barker's extraordinary new dystopian novel. Helen R. Brown loves Elizabeth Day's The Party. And John Self, unfortunately, winces at Claudio Magri's experimental Blameless. I hope you enjoy it. Why wait for tomorrow's papers? 
The best analysis of the day's news is already on Coffee House. To subscribe to the Evening Blend email in order to receive the best of the spectator each day, just head to spectator.co.uk forward slash blend.